0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. So Acts 21, uh, if you're using those black hardcover Bibles that Elise mentioned a moment ago, page 930 uh, is where you'll find today's text. In the uh, 1999 movie, The Green Mile, Tom Hanks plays Paul Edgecombe. Uh, he's a prison guard that supervises death row. Uh, and told from his perspective as an old man, looking back, uh, he recalls the story of one particular supernaturally gifted inmate. John Coffey, uh, played by Michael Clark Duncan, uh, ends up wrongly convicted and ultimately I'm going to spoil it, but it's a 22-year-old movie, so I don't, I don't think I have to apologize for that. Uh, wrongly executed for a crime he did not commit. Uh, but as he awaits his long walk down the Green Mile, which is the corridor between the, the jail cell and the death chamber, he uses his time in prison to make wrong things right. He heals some people. Uh, he brings justice to some other people. And then his time comes. And so years later, an old, retired Paul Edgecombe, looking back, says, we each owe a death. There are no exceptions. I know that. But sometimes, oh God, the green mile is so long. In other words, in a way, we're all on death row. He's reflecting back and thinking, we're all on death row. We all walk some kind of green mile. It's rare that in any given moment you and I are aware of that. Uh, Rarer still that we would have an idea how our end would come. But at any time, that fateful death row phrase could be said of us. Dead man walking. Dead man walking. In Acts chapter 21, Paul is completing now his third missionary journey. Uh, And as we've heard whispers of in the last couple chapters, he's being led by the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what exactly awaits him there afflictions and imprisonment for sure, uh, possibly even his own death. And so at this point in the book of Acts, we're given an incredible glimpse into Paul's inner workings. Uh, More than most, he has a clear sense that his life might soon be over. So how will he live in light of that? How will he use his time? How will he relate to the people he comes in contact with? Or we might say it this way, What does it look like for a follower of Jesus to live as a dead man or a dead woman walking? Let's consider that together this morning from Acts 21. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. I'll begin in verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemas, and we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with, with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, "'You see, brother,' How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented to each one of them, for each one of them. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. When the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he, a- he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Teach us, Lord, even in these moments, teach us your way and lead us on a level path. Teach us, to hear and believe and to follow your decrees, that we may keep them to the end of our lives. Give us understanding that we might keep your law, that we might obey you with all of our hearts. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. What does it look like to live as a dead man walking? Uh, We are not Paul, of course. Our lives are not his. But in this text, we find a number of principles that we can follow in our own fleeting lives. We don't know when our mortal lives will end. But even as Nate reminded us as he led us in liturgy this morning, we do know for certain that they will. So let's learn from Paul this morning. As he resolutely heads toward and then arrives in Jerusalem, knowing hardship, knowing possibly even his own death await him there, there's a few things that Paul does in this text Three pairs of things that we'll talk about this morning. Paul discerns and determines. He defers and defies. And then he discovers and deals. Discern and determine, defer and defy, discover and deal. So first, discern and determine. Uh, As Luke here is wrapping up the travel log of the third missionary journey, uh, we're forced to actually stop and ask What is the Holy Spirit actually leading Paul to do? What is the Holy Spirit actually saying to Paul and to the church in this moment? We read back in Acts 19 that by the Holy Spirit's leading, Paul had resolved to go to Jerusalem. And then last week in chapter 20, he said to the Ephesian elders, and now I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit. But here in chapter 21, we get a little bit of a mixed message. Look back there at at verse 4. During their week long stay at Tyre, some of the disciples, quote, through the Spirit, Luke says, through the Spirit, are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. As they continue on from there, they arrive at Caesarea. And for the first time in 20 years, we meet Philip again. Remember Philip? We haven't seen him since Acts chapter 8. He's one of the seven originally appointed to help uh, uh, care for widows and the distribution of food. He was an evangelist then to Samaria. He uh, shared the good news of Jesus with the Ethiopian eunuch. Haven't heard from Philip in 20 years. Now he's there in Caesarea. He's got four daughters now and all of them have the gift of prophecy. But for Luke, that's like a tiny footnote because Luke speeds past it. He's far more intent to write about a prophet named Agabus. Most likely, this is the, the same Agabus that we met back in Acts chapter 11, who was in Antioch some years before. But now he comes, not simply to tell Paul, but in true Old Testament prophet fashion, enact, dramatize his prophecy. Agabus takes Paul's belt, and in at least what I think is a very impressive acrobatic move, somehow ties his own hands and his own feet with the same piece of rope or whatever this was. Okay, Don't try that at home. Don't try that at home. Like I think about, like I maybe could tie my feet, I probably could tie my feet together with a belt. Maybe my hands, but but both together, not a chance. Not a chance. And Agabus, as he does this, then says, verse 11, thus says, who? The Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And then in response to that, his traveling companions and Philip and the disciples in Caesarea, they plead with Paul, hey, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. So what is the Holy Spirit actually leading Paul to do here? The Spirit has given him clear direction, constraint even. He's got to go to Jerusalem. But along the way now, it seems like the Spirit is saying the opposite. Scholars have proposed a couple different ideas for how to resolve this. They agree Luke has way too high a view of the Holy Spirit to think that the Holy Spirit is contradicting himself. And if we actually step back for just a moment with Agabus, it's a little easier to to resolve this. Uh, When Agabus speaks for the Holy Spirit, he simply tells Paul what's going to happen. Uh, It actually lines up really well with what Paul himself has heard. Affliction and imprisonment await him. Agabus just adds a little bit of detail about who's going to be involved. And then afterward, when those traveling companions plead with Paul not to go, Luke actually doesn't mention there that they're being led by the Spirit. So I think this is a case of well-intentioned people, uh, people who really love Paul and care about Paul, but who are offering their own opinions in this moment rather than seeking to understand the Spirit's leading. And Jesus, of course, on at least one occasion, experienced the same thing from the apostle Peter. Jesus told his disciples, hey, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, it will never happen. And Jesus didn't say, that's clearly of the Spirit. He said, get behind me, Satan. And he went on to say to Peter, Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, you're setting your mind on the things of man. You're offering your own opinion here, not the true guidance of God. So the more difficult one here, I think, to resolve is actually the words of the disciples entire back in verse 4, where Luke says that in the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go. So I think this is just the best I can put these pieces together. I think this is a test for Paul. Uh, Not altogether different from how Abraham was given this son, Isaac, by God and promised that through him there would be descendants that were greater than the stars and the sand on the seashore. And then soon after, tested. God told him, now go sacrifice Isaac. I think the Spirit really did direct Paul to go to Jerusalem. And I think the Spirit really did then prompt well-meaning Christians to tell him not to go but as a test for Paul to see, are you really gonna obey what you clearly heard from me in the first place? All that to say, as a dead man walking, Paul has to both discern and determine. He has to discern the leading of the Holy Spirit and then when the waters get a little muddy, when it becomes a little less clear, he has to determine to, to stay that course. And you and I have to do the very same thing in our lives. We have to be attentive to where the Spirit of God is leading, and that's true for major, you know, big-picture decisions in our lives, like our education and our vocation and family kinds of decisions. It's also true in day-to-day interactions. It is not always clear, or sometimes it seems really clear, and then all of a sudden, it doesn't seem clear anymore. If we stay the course, how do we know if we're being obstinate and just digging our heels in? Or if we're being steadfast and resolute? Or if we say, you know what, actually it's time for me to change course. How do we know if we're being teachable and receptive to the, to the Spirit of God? Or if we're being fickle and fearful? How do we know if this is a moment where there's wisdom in an abundance of counselors? Or if this is a moment where the multitude is mistaken? Those are huge questions. <laughs> huge questions. Huge questions. Entire books have been written on this, so I'm going to be content this morning just to raise some of the hard questions without giving you a ton of answers to them. I would invite you to continue on in your Bible study groups or in conversations this week to explore these and unpack these some. But one overarching principle that we see in Acts 21 comes there in verse 14. Hearing Paul's renewed resolve, what do then his traveling companions and Philip, the evangelist, and the other disciples of Caesarea, what do they say? Let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's what Jesus himself said in the garden of Gethsemane. And if in your prayer life, you start to sound a little bit like Jesus, you're probably on the right track. You're probably on the right track. Jesus in the garden prayed for God to take the cup of his wrath, to take the cup of suffering out of his hands, to not make him go through with it. But then he concluded his prayer, not my will, but yours be done. So as you seek to discern the spirit's leading and determine then to stay the course the question to ask yourself is do i truly desire to know and follow god's will or is this just something that i want and i'm going to grasp at any and every straw to try to build a case that this is god leading me to this place in other words are you and are the other people that you're seeking counsel from in that moment are you starting with your own conclusion and then try and just kind of slap a, you know, spirit-approved label on it? Or are you really, are all of you, longing to discern God's direction? Because despite the sorrow that this group experiences, and despite the danger that it is to Paul, everyone here, at the end of the day, really wants God's will to be done. And so, they stop pleading with Paul. And not only that, they go with him. They continue the journey. They don't say, well, if you're not going to take my advice, forget you. You're on your own. They, they go with him. No matter what it is, they want to discern the Spirit's path and then determine together to follow it. Second, if that's discerning and determining, second, Paul both defers and defies. Paul and this entourage with him, they arrive in Jerusalem uh, and they're warmly received by the church there. James, who's the leader of the church, Jesus' brother, and the other elders, they rejoice When they hear Paul recount how how much God has done through him in all these different cities, all these places he's traveled to around the Mediterranean. And then, moreover, just as Paul has seen God do incredible work through him among the Gentiles, the church in Jerusalem, in those same years that he's been gone, they've seen many thousands of Jewish people come to put their faith in Jesus, too. So it's amazing. It's this moment of celebration. Except, except these new Jewish Christians, Question Paul's faithfulness. They have the impression that Paul is telling the Christians in these cities that he's traveling to to disregard the Mosaic law. Now, in a way, that's, that's true. Paul is not requiring Gentile Christians to circumcise their children, he's not requiring them to keep all of the customs and traditions of the Jewish people. But he's certainly not disregarding Scripture. He's not telling people to forsake the law of Moses, he's instead trying to help people see the law fulfilled. In Jesus, But now, in order to set the conscience of these Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem, in order to set their conscience at ease, James tells Paul, hey, make a public gesture here. Purify yourself. Pay the expenses of these four Jewish men who have just completed a Nazarite vow. And as we read, Paul, apparently without any objection, without any complaint, he agrees and he proceeds to do just that. So this is deference. Paul defers to the conscience of these men and women in Jerusalem who have become Christians in the years since he's been gone. And that's remarkable to me. Maybe that's remarkable to you. Because it seems to me like someone who believes he might be close to the end of his life could very easily have the opposite response. Defiance. Exasperation. Anger. Put yourself for just a moment in Paul's shoes this morning. You've just completed not your first, not your second, but your third missionary journey. You've given years of your life to traveling around, putting yourself in danger to share the gospel. In many of those places you've gone, you've actually taken a second job to support yourself. You've suffered constantly. And now you've been told by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem where you're about to suffer even more and maybe lose your life. And then when you arrive to Jerusalem, a group of baby Christians questions your faithfulness. Can you imagine that? Imagine yourself being Paul in this moment. It's kind of like how some first-year Bible college students or seminary students, when they get into those classes, they start to look at the church they're part of and think like, man, everything here is wrong. I'm not sure the leaders of this church actually love Jesus. Uh, I've been doing this. I've been thinking about this for five minutes now as a first-year student. I'm pretty sure I love Jesus more than the people of that church do. Not that I ever did that when I was in seminary, but I might have. Um, On top of that, though, on top of that, you've got then the leader of the Jerusalem church, Jesus' own brother, saying, hey, Paul, I know this stuff's not true. I know you're a faithful guy. But for their sake, could you just go ahead and make this public gesture? Could you just go do this other thing? Could you prove externally your faithfulness? If I were Paul, I might lose my mind in this moment. Like, are you kidding me, James? Are you kidding me, Jerusalem Christians? What have I been doing the past 20 years? I'm I'm not making a public gesture. I don't need to. My faithfulness is not on the line here. I mean, what are you going to do if I don't do this? Hurt me? Join the club. I've been traveling around the Mediterranean. People have been hurting me everywhere. Kill me? I'm ready for that. That's why I'm here in Jerusalem. So thankfully, Paul is not me. Paul still defers in this moment. Even when his faithfulness is unfairly called into question, he responds faithfully with more faithfulness. True to his words in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul will become all things to all people so that by any means possible, he might save some. Now, having said that, look at the other thing that James says here in verse 25. He reiterates the decision, the letter, that came from the Jerusalem council back in Acts 15. He says, Gentiles don't need to observe the ceremonial laws and traditions. They've only been asked to do a few things for the sake of living in community with Jewish Christians. Now, why does James, in this moment, repeat that decision? Paul was there for the Jerusalem council. Why does James feel a need to reiterate that in this moment? I think he's anticipating Paul's objection. See, because as willing as Paul is to defer to the Jewish Christians there, he would be just as ready to defy them if they were requiring Gentiles to be circumcised. The the whole book of Galatians is Really, about that. If people are excluding Gentile Christians, if they're saying something besides faith in Jesus is necessary for their salvation, you would see, I'm convinced, something very different from Paul in this moment. Because now the gospel itself would be on the line. But when James here kind of anticipates the objection and assures him hey, Paul, this is not a gospel, the gospel is not on the line here. This is just something that would be really helpful and important for the conscience of Jewish Christians, Paul the first. So in our lives, there are moments to defer and there are moments to defy. If the gospel is on the line, we defy. We defy. If we are dead men or dead women walking, if we're ready to accept our death for Jesus' sake, then we don't fear other people. We don't capitulate about the gospel for fear of what other people will think or how other people will respond. We hold the line and we defy. At the same time, if we are ready to accept our death for Jesus' sake, if we are really that free, then we can keep expressing love to others by deferring to them in non-gospel issues. As F.F. F. Bruce, a scholar, once put it, a truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. I'm going to say that again because, man, those are some Those are some words. A truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. Or we could say it maybe this way. If you are truly a dead man walking, if you are willing to accept your death for Jesus' sake, then you're willing to die every single step of the way. Not just one great grand gesture to end your life. You're willing to die to yourself every single day to that moment. So defy when the gospel is at stake. Otherwise, defer. So we've got discern deter, and determine, defer and defy. Third and finally, Paul discovers and Paul deals. He discovers, he sees what God has in store for him. He discovers it along the way and then he deals with it. I really wanted to go six for six on the letter D of all these words. A better way to think about what I mean here when I say Paul deals with it is that though this is hard and though it entails all of his suffering, he receives and he accepts what comes from the hand of God. That's what what we mean here. As it turns out, a different group of Jewish people, they're the ones who initiate Paul's affliction in Jerusalem. It's not the Jewish Christians to whom he defers. It's a group of Jews from Asia, most likely from the city of Ephesus, where Paul was not that long ago. They're there probably to celebrate Pentecost, And they recognize Paul, and they recognize this Ephesian Christian named Trophimus. And they wrongly assume, because they see Trophimus there, that Paul has brought him, a Gentile, Trophimus, into the temple. That, of course, was a big no-no. The temple courts, there was a wall, a literal dividing wall of hostility that kept Gentiles out, that kept them at a distance from the temple. And to cross that boundary for a non-Jewish person was punishable by death. So an enraged mob of Jewish people now gather when they assume Paul has brought a Gentile into the temple and they begin to beat Paul. And that this very well could have been the end of Paul's life. This could have been his death. As it says there, they were seeking to kill him. They weren't just trying to teach him a lesson. They were trying to kill him. But just in time, the Roman military leader, the tribune, and some of his soldiers intervene. They, they end up carrying him away out of the violence of the mob. It's actually a really interesting turn that happens here. In line with Agabus's prophecy, Paul is seized by the Jews in Jerusalem. But here in this moment, he's not delivered into the hands of the Gentiles as much as he's delivered by the hands of the Gentiles. They're the ones that actually intervene. And the reason that Paul is still alive after this moment is because the Romans intervene and pull him out of that danger. But here's the point. Confident that the Spirit has led him, and then continuing to walk faithfully by deferring or defying, all that's now left for Paul is to discover what's going to happen and to receive the next thing, to receive the the progression of events, whatever that's going to entail, as from the hand of God. We'll learn in the coming weeks that this is not the end for Paul. He has somewhere between five and ten more years before he eventually is put to death, under the, under the hands of Nero uh, in Rome. Jerusalem, for Paul, will be just a stop on the way to Rome. And the road from where he is here in, in chapter 21, the road from here to there, is long and it's turbulent. Many years, five different trials in front of different officials. He has a lot to discover. He has many joys and many sorrows that he's going to have to deal with. that will have to accept from God in the years to come. At this moment, however, Paul knows none of that. All he knows is that he is, by the Spirit's leading, on the right road. And that wherever this road ends up leading, it is the course that God has put him on. And Christian, what I hope you hear me say to you this morning is that keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, you can have that same confidence. You can have that same confidence. Rather than worrying about the specifics of the future, you can discover the future as it unfolds. And you can not only deal with it, but you can step confidently into whatever happens later today or tomorrow or this week, receiving that as something that comes from the sovereign hand of God. Why could Paul be confident of that? Why can you and I be confident of that? Because about 30 years earlier, in almost exactly the same spot, there was another crowd gathered together, crying out away with him. And Jesus Christ, to accomplish the redemption that he had planned with God the Father, went willingly to his death. He walked the worst green mile, if you want to think of it that way, that there, that there was. Carrying his own cross on his back on the road to Calvary, where he would be forsaken, abandoned by God the Father, with whom he'd had this eternal relationship of love and communion. When reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. And as he suffered, he did not threaten. At each new step of his flogging and his trial and his crucifixion, Jesus kept entrusting himself to God. And then lifted up on beams of wood and mocked for not coming down. In refusing to save himself, Jesus saves all who will look to him and live. For the forgiveness of your sin and for your reconciliation with God, for the sake of your life, Jesus once was the dead man walking. Paul can live this way. He can live out the rest of his life, whatever it entails, because his Savior walked that road. And because his Savior not only walked that road, but then sent the Spirit. You can live this way too, friends. You can live this way. The Spirit has come as a gift from Jesus so that you and I can discern and determine, so that you and I can defer and defy, so that you and I can discover and then accept what comes from the hand of God. The Spirit has come as we celebrated together this morning in our liturgy that you and I could live new lives, that we're dead to sin, that we've been crucified with Christ, that we have died and our lives are now hidden with God in Christ. So whatever the rest of your life holds, because we don't know what that is, illness or aging, persecution, poverty, cancer or COVID, or whatever it might be, by the Holy Spirit's power, let us walk that road. However long and whatever specific green mile you end up walking, you can endure that because your Savior walked his. And as we get to come to this table and to see the cost that he paid for us this morning, we get to stop and say together, praise be to God the Son who was once the dead man walking for us. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Now, Lord God, by the power of your spirit, we ask for strength to live out this message that we have heard today. We confess, we cling to the wrong kind of life that is not life. We cling to death rather than truly dying in you and being raised with you. Help us to see this morning the real freedom that you have purchased for us and invited us into that we can live knowing that our lives are hidden with you in God knowing that we can face whatever the rest of our lives entail by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would, whatever faces us later today, whatever faces us this week, this month, this year, that even as we now get to come to this table and feast on your finished work, Jesus, that you would renew us and renew our strength. You would give us grace again at this table and send us out ready and willing to follow you no matter what that looks like. We can do that because you have died for us. You have walked this road for us. So we're grateful for that, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.